<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. So my younger son is like a machine in terms of breaking headphones. So we ordered him a new pair of headphones. So these headphones came the day before his was scheduled to be delivered. And he took these and I said, nope, nope, nope. We got you another one. <laughs> my son went crazy. He was like, wow, dad, you're actually doing something cool. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Mark Lewis, and I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself living with a hereditary tumor syndrome, so I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. And I'm Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune. My friends call me JL. And I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. So JL, other than rocketing to fame and fortune through podcasting, what's <laughs> happening? I'm good, man. Uh, you know, our listeners may not know this, but we tend to record late in the day on Friday's Eastern time. So our recording sessions are often the marker of the official end of my work week. So nice. I'd like to say TGIF to you. <laughs> uh, although to be fair to myself, you know, I would generally work odd hours since addiction and mental health challenges don't adhere to a standard nine to five Monday to Friday schedule. So, you know, uh, I'll probably be working this weekend, but great to speak with you as always. Yeah, working nine to five, what a way to make a living, he said with considerable envy. <laughs> so so our, our, our question of the day, how can I advocate for myself, and this is going to be a little bit of a loaded question, in our crazy healthcare system? The source of the question mm -hmm. comes from people that you and I have spoken to who don't feel as if they have a voice in their own care. They feel disenfranchised. And frankly, this also comes from our own experience as patients and caregivers. I have to tell you, JL, there is one phrase in medicine that I loathe above all others. Just one? I mean, <laughs> you know, there are so many triggering phrases for physicians. Let me think, hmm, relative base value units, um, utilization review. Hmm, that, I, I'm sure I could come up with 10 more, but if I had to guess the one you're talking about and the one that drives me nuts is prior authorization. Oh yes, too soon, my friend. I literally just had to argue that a patient of mine who is getting chemotherapy mm. also deserved to be prescribed anti-nausea medicine. Mm -hmm. But that's for my other podcast, Mark screams into the microphone about the rampant injustices of the for-profit American healthcare system. It just <laughs> drives me up the wall. It just feels wrong. Oh my God. And for people who aren't familiar with prior authorization, PA as it's referred to is a process by which your doctor or a member of that doctor's team has to ask for permission from the insurance company before taking some kind of action. Prior authorization, if you think about it, is really a way that insurance companies control the care that you receive. And they usually put the prior authorization step in front of something that's going to be expensive, like ordering an expensive medication. And Mark, you know, as an oncologist, you, I mean, every medication you touch 
touch is expensive. So this has got to be an everyday thing for you, right? Yeah, it's it's really systemic and maddening. You know, chemo and anti-nausea medicine should go together part and parcel, right? Having one without the other makes no sense. And it's just bad care. And even from a fiscal perspective, if the patient ends up vomiting so uncontrollably that they go to the ER, that is almost certainly going to be more expensive than the drug I asked for in the first place. For sure. And, and to be honest, you know, I've had to put in prior authorization requests for dumb stuff, like higher than an approved dose for a generic medication that costs just a few dollars. You know, I get on the phone and talk to somebody for 20 minutes. It's crazy. And what a lot of other people don't understand is why is the facts so important in the doctor's office? The facts is important because all of these prior auths generally have to be faxed to an insurance company. So it is 2022. Most people have been on the internet for 20 years and we're still <laughs> yes. using the facts. And just to give you a stat, the average practice, the average practice submits 37 of these prior authorization requests per week. Oh. That takes 16 hours of staff from either the doctor or the staff members of the doctor's office. So it's almost like hiring an additional half person just to do this. And, you know, I think what people really need to understand is that behind the scenes, your doctor and his team or her team are waging a war on your behalf often to try to get things approved, to try to get the things that you need. And it's really a big part of the job that doctors really hate. Yeah, absolutely. So PA is terrible, you and I are agreed. <laughs> But there is still one thing, one phrase I hate more than that, one epithet to rule them all. Oh, boy. The difficult patient. The implication <laughs> that a patient who stands up for themselves is speaking out of turn. Oh, boy. We're really peeling back the, the, the secrets now. Uh, but let's, let's talk about the difficult patient, because I think that's an important concept from the standpoint of a doctor. And it's really an inside baseball kind of thing. In an earlier episode, you and I talked about our beloved uh, show Seinfeld and, and Elaine actually getting labeled as a difficult <laughs> sure. patient. But uh -huh. to take it from, you know, must-see TV into our literature, I found this really interesting article in the Journal of the American Family Physician from 2005. It's called Management of the Difficult Patient. I will be honest. Hmm. I thought I was going to hate <laughs> this article. The title prejudiced me. But here's what it actually said. It said, all physicians must care for some patients who are perceived as difficult because of behavioral or emotional aspects that affect their care. That's true. And, and look, to be fair to ourselves, I would point out that every industry has to deal with the challenging client or consumer. So it's definitely not just in medicine that this is an issue. It's basically in, in every industry. Right. And I wanted to stop and actually unpack the behavioral or emotional aspects because you treat addiction. I treat mm -hmm. cancer. There is... Obviously, a lot of behavior and emotion in our fields, but neither one of us is going to view or label all of our patients as difficult. Definitely not. I'd say most patients are a joy to work with, and uh, you know it makes makes the job so satisfying and yeah. so fulfilling. But there's always a small fraction that you know make the the job a little hard. Yeah, and, and frankly, I, I try to extend my patients a lot of grace, knowing that a cancer diagnosis is, to put it lightly, one of the more stressful experiences a human being can go through. So, you know, before we let everybody off the hook for misconduct, I mean, JL, what do, what do you think are the real no-nos that, that would rightly earn a patient in practice a difficult label? First of all, uh, as most people know, a doctor's office is always running on a razor's edge, right? Trying to take care of as many people as possible. So the one person who shows up late, who waltzes in 15, 20 minutes late, often doesn't realize that they're blowing up the whole schedule, not only negatively impacting the doctor, but 
inconveniencing the many other patients who are trying to get the attention of the clinical staff. So being a chronically late person can definitely get you the difficult label. I mean, that's got to be true in your practice, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's the snowball effect. You know, if you're if you're that person that's late in the morning, then the entire you know day's panel gets shifted to adjust to you. And I also say, again, allowing for the fact this is all very stressful, just being rude and discourteous to your care team, whether that's the person at the front desk, the person taking your vital signs, your actual physician. We try to treat you with respect, and we just kind of expect the same in return. But in my mind, JL, this whole difficult patient phrase arose actually in a different era. I think it is a vestige of the time when you know doctors were paternalist. That's a word we've used before also. Mm-hmm. So all the responsibility was on us, but all the autonomy had been sort of wrestled away from the patients and we were calling all the shots. And I think what the crux of today's discussion is about advocacy is who ultimately has the say in what happens to the patient. And, you know, I think a modern fully informed patient is someone that's going to come in having done their own research. And even now in 2022, doing your own research is such a loaded phrase, right? <laughs> For sure. And and I think as we think about it and as we think about patients using that, that terminology or that expression, I think there is doing your own research where you're actually looking at respected sources of information versus doing information, you know, uh, doing research on Facebook and picking up information from people that you've never met before, people who may not even exist in the real world. So I think that's the that's the subtlety there that we have to manage. Yeah, exactly. So this article I'm quoting, it goes on to say difficulties may actually be traced not just to the patient, but to the physician or the healthcare system. And now I'm warming to this article. Okay. The patient is part of an interaction, but they are certainly not solely to blame if there is difficulty. So patient factors that this article wrote about include psychiatric and personality disorders, Mm -hmm. but the physician factors include overwork, poor communication skills, and discomfort with uncertainty. So I think we're just being honest that we can be part of the problem. For sure. And and again, it goes back to what I was saying before about what's happening behind the scenes. You know, I think patients often don't understand how much a physician is wrestling with his or her individual caseload, uh, how that physician is impacted by their interactions with other patients. And then, of course, what's going on in the, the broader health system, be it at the hospital, uh, be it at the health insurance company. There are many, many things that impact how your physician interacts with you. And then, you know, like you're saying that the healthcare system is this big unruly machine where there's productivity pressures, there's changes in in financing. Now, at this point in the article, I thought, well, that's a really polite way of saying that medical bills are the number one cause of you know personal bankruptcy in the United States. Crazy, crazy. Fragmentation of visits uh, and, and this is to me, this is the crux, the availability of outside information sources that challenge the physician's authority. And there he is, our arch rival, Dr. Google. (laughs) <laughs> and, and, you know, and it's fascinating because it really is every generation of doctors like to think that, you know, what they're doing is different from a prior generation. But for doctors in our generation, we really are different from earlier generations because back in the days when my dad was training, like the, the doctors were the only ones who had access to the information. If you're a patient and wanted to read the New England Journal, maybe you went to your local library to find that information. But nowadays for doctors like us, every single time that we're interacting with a patient, they're often coming in having done their own research armed with information that they found online, sometimes of varying quality. Yeah. So there's this mug I've seen that says, don't confuse your Google search (laughs) with my medical degree. And Uh I think it is, as the kids say, 
cringe um, because mm-hmm. here's here's the truth. A recent survey of 300 members of the American Medical Association showed that Google is actually the number three source of information for doctors coming sure. after th- their colleagues and after the peer-reviewed literature. So I think we're complete hypocrites if we look down at our patients for using search engines when it's their life on the line. And again, as an oncologist, it's well known, something like 95% of cancer patients will Google their disease at time of diagnosis. Mm -hmm. And really, who can blame them? You know, and I think medicine has lagged behind tech here. You said that you and I are part of this newer generation of physicians. And I like to think that's true. On the other hand, I think you and I also kind of bridge this uh, era where I remember in medical school, I was tasked with answering a question. I had to go to the dusty stacks of our library, <laughs> dig out uh-huh. an old journal article, Xerox it using my own money. There's another uh, archaic term. Uh-huh. Uh, and that now I have that same answer at my digital fingertips. And so do the patients if they know where to look. Absolutely. And remember, I'm a little older than you are. So I remember going to the stacks in college to find books, even up to medical school in the late 90s, you know, trying to find physical sources of information. And it was just at that time that a lot of these sources started to come online and to be available digitally with the first one being up to date, if I remember correctly. Yeah. So there's this phrase information paradox. And I think what it means here is that the volume of sources available has made it increasingly difficult to find the relevant facts when needed. And it is what I'm getting Mm -hmm. at is it's okay to Google your own health questions, but it is also okay to ask your healthcare providers professional expertise in interpreting the results. Your doc can help you separate the wheat from the chaff and you might actually be helping your doctor. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that there's so much to know out there that the patients who come in and, and they're well informed about their own care actually think they're doing a service to us. So this brings me now not to my least favorite, to, but to my favorite term in medicine. Oh. <laughs> you ready? Drum roll. Patient advocates. Okay. Mm. So I'm going to cite a definition here. Okay. A patient advocate helps people get the information they need to make decisions about their health care and then works with the doctors and practitioners to make sure the person gets what they need to heal and receive the best care possible. Mm-hmm. Patient advocates have emerged to help deal with the skyrocketing number of chronic illnesses and, as we said before, as we say every podcast, <laughs> the complex and confusing conventional healthcare system. And what a lot of people may not understand is that patient advocates are present at many hospitals and health systems. There are nonprofit and for-profit companies that can help you with advocacy. Some of these advocates are specialized, sometimes focusing on a specific disease like cancer or addiction, or sometimes even focusing on a specific task. Uh, There are some advocates that can help you with your medical bills. The CEO of Offscroup Health is a guy named Matthew Zachary, a very well-known patient advocate. And he's always argued that tapping into online resources Sources from other survivors and organizations that are related to your particular condition can be a great way to access advocacy skills. And there's this notion that collective knowledge and experience can be helpful in guiding people through their own healthcare journey. Yeah, strength in numbers, right? Mm-hmm. Along with that, though, I want to highlight a patient advocate doesn't have to be another person. It can be you. 
Sure. You can be your own best advocate. Absolutely. Nobody knows who you are better than you do, and nobody knows what you want better than you do. So, you know, the knowledge of the goals and concerns that you have and a clear communication of those things to your providers can have a dramatic impact on the care you receive. And again, it's always best coming from you as opposed to being filtered through family or other people who might be able to communicate that information. I know I've been speaking in abstractions about why we should get rid of the difficult patient and why we should advocate. I'm actually going to get very concrete. I'm going to use myself as an example. Mm -hmm. So when I was first suspecting that I had a genetic disorder, I was in a very interesting spot where I was a very junior doctor and I had to convince my very senior internist that I was right. Okay. Sort of the young whippersnapper effect, if you will. (laughs) I had to respectfully approach him with my concerns and present Mm -hmm. my case. And one way I've sort of heard this all framed, it's like a negotiation of sorts. Like you said, you go in knowing what you want, what results you're aiming for. And it's okay to ask for what, what you want. You just have to be reasonable in your expectations realize there are limits in what the doctor can do. Mm-hmm. And also, to be fair, there are things that they are likely to know from their training and their experience that you don't. So here's how it went down. In my case, I went to him saying, listen, I know I have a high calcium level. I know my dad had that too. And of course, that was a piece of the puzzle that was missing for him. Mm-hmm. And I said, there's only two conditions that I know of that cause high calcium in consecutive generations, one of which is a cancer syndrome. Now, I can't at this point ethically, legally test myself, will you order that test for me? So Hmm. what I'm laying out here, Jay, I went in knowing what I wanted, being very specific, trying not to be too pushy, and actually staying a little bit open-minded. So I let him express his doubts. And believe me, he told me. He said, I'm skeptical. (laughs) This is what you have. But ultimately, he conceded. And and I do know that maybe I was pulling a little bit of the professional courtesy card and not all patients would have the same experience. But Mm -hmm. this give and take to me was really important. It was actually crucial in me figuring out what was wrong with me. I'd say in addiction, I tend to feel the same way. You know, I think that the give and take is very useful. I think that the informed patient can really broaden your tool set that you can use to help that person achieve their goals, right? And uh, in the addiction world, people have all types of goals. There's, you know, complete cessation all the way down to moderating use. So you really have to be speaking clearly and honestly with your patients to help them, to help you understand what they want. Now, the thing that I will say is that you have to be careful, I think, as a provider to let somebody drive the care, right? Because sometimes people have unrealistic notions about what a particular medication can do or what a particular strategy can do or how it can be used. So I think your goal as a physician is to listen as much as you can to guide. And when people are sort of off base, you know, be pretty firm in helping them understand that, hey, this is not consistent with the science that we accept in this specialty. Yeah, there's still a reason it takes so many years to become a doc and still a reason we hold these very special licenses that give us, you know, prescription of, say, controlled substances. It did strike me, though, JL, as you were talking, it's almost as if we only know what the patient wants if we talk to them. How about that? What a what a revelation. <laughs> and, and That's like first year of medical school, right? <laughs> and when, they, when we when we ask them what they want, they, they should feel empowered to tell us back. So, okay. Not to be a pushy doctor here, but I think it is time to take a break. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, JL, so I think we want to, as always, empower our listeners to get more value out of their healthcare. Mm-hmm. One thing I really like is to position the patient as the content expert on their own body. So I often tell my patients, listen, I got fancy tests, I got scans, I got labs, I can quantify you in almost any way imaginable and and perhaps beyond reason. (laughs) But that is what I'll call a punctuated equilibrium. I see people at intervals, sometimes months apart. And actually, I think you might be surprised, even as a fellow doc, if someone's on chemo, the average frequency with which I see them is every two weeks. Mm. That sounds sometimes to people I describe that to almost negligent. There's It's a reasonable tempo to me, but there's this huge gap between those visits, uh, a continuum, if you will, that the patient inhabits that I don't and I am not seeing them in that period. And they can really fall off, as you might imagine, in that gap. So for sure, there was this really remarkable study presented at a cancer conference a few years ago, which really just blew me away. So the survival benefit of patients reporting their symptoms between chemotherapy visits was on par Mm -hmm. with the survival benefit of some blockbuster oncology drugs (laughs) that are worth billions of dollars. And that's all it took, just asking people how they were doing, Mm -hmm. what worries they were having, what side effects they were noticing in those gaps between appointments. Patients speaking up is so powerful. Sure. And look, I, I this is a point that I've made at conferences. I've, I've written about this. I really think that a model in which doctors and patients are interacting more frequently, sort of smaller little blips of information, maybe a text here, mm-hmm. uh, an email there, and that's very much the way our practice is structured, can make so much of a difference. Because again, when you have these big, thick interactions every two weeks, you know, it's it sometimes can be feel very formal. People can forget things. And, you know, when you can communicate between sessions, right? And again, even these little micro blips kind of communications, patients can communicate in so many interesting and nuanced ways and can, I think, more effectively advocate for themselves because they're like, hey, I'm just chatting with the doc or I'm just chatting with the nurse and I'm giving her or him some information. And I think that can make a dramatic difference in how people uh, receive care. So it's great to hear that that study is actually quantifying the benefits and talking about a billion dollars of value. That's what gets some people in healthcare really excited. Yes. And and basically the outcome was it would trigger an earlier visit if there was some sort of red flag there. Right. Mm -hmm. So I think what we're getting at is we want patients to feel like it is uh, totally fine for them to speak up at visits and through the means you mentioned between visits. Um, I also wanted to give them some practical tips. Now, this list was called from WebMD. I know there's almost a, a joke that any search you do on WebMD ends up telling you have cancer. Uh, <laughs> as an oncologist, that's not true. And actually, you know, we were mentioning earlier, well, what are good troves of information on, on the internet? So WebMD actually, I think is pretty good. Mm-hmm. The Mayo Clinic has an excellent site, Cleveland Clinic. These are online resources that you can generally trust. And on, on the other hand, if you Google something, and it immediately surfaces at the top a commercial product, you know, buyer beware, because it's probably search engine optimization SEO that got that result, got your eyeballs on it. So first tip from uh, WebMD, 
you and your doctors should be making decisions as a team. And if you don't speak up with your questions, needs, concerns, and preferences, no one else can know those. Only you can uh, announce them. And I like to really encourage patients in my own practice and people that I consult with, really be proactive and use the words team and shared decision-making to really signal to your doctor how you'd like to approach your care. I think patients, you know, words matter and doctors pick up on that kind of signaling from the patient. And if you're saying, I wanna be involved, using those words can help your doctor and his or her care team really engage you at a higher level. Yeah. And then the doctor-patient relationship, you know, really should be founded upon openness and honesty and trust. We'll get to tweets later, but actually there was a a really (laughs) important tweet by an anesthesiologist just this last week saying, listen, I'm your anesthesiologist. Do not lie to me about what you've been taking. I think specifically they were getting into sort of drugs and alcohol because it'll affect the anesthesia they give you. Mm -hmm. But, you know, outside that very intense setting, you know, you and your doctors really are in a partnership. And I know this is almost bordering on being sappy, but it's true. Like they should listen to your concerns and answer your questions so that you feel comfortable sharing. We have confidentiality. And and that means that in that room, you should be able to say anything to your doctor and, and have them authentically hear you. Absolutely. And and really, we really need to emphasize this. Like, don't hold back. I think sometimes patients may think, hey, something is trivial, something is unimportant, maybe I'm wasting the doctor's time. If it is unimportant, your doctor will hopefully politely tell you, interesting, but not really relevant to what we're talking (laughs) about here. But again, so many discoveries that physicians make are often offhand comments that a patient will make about a side effect or some other thing that they're going through that can be very, very useful in terms of providing quality care. Yeah, your, your interesting comment there, Jail. It reminds me of in medicine, if you ask another specialist to see your patient and they don't think that it's of any real academic value, they'll always respond with, thank you for this interesting consult. It's our <laughs> professional way of saying, well, that was completely boring. Uh, but 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 that's that's on our you know, doc-to-doc level. We really do want patients to be speaking up. Um, and, and also, we've talked about this before too, your time is really valuable. Do your homework before and after each doctor's visit. It's okay, like we said, to look up your symptoms, your conditions, treatments that you might be interested in. You know, if there's if there's new medicines that the doctor is then prescribing, you know, do the opposite and read about those those medications. Uh, if you don't understand what a condition is, what a treatment does, how you should take a medicine, absolutely ask that doc and ask them to give you wording you can understand. I have to tell you, JL, it's been eye-opening even doing this pod with you. You and our producers have told me, Mark you're using jargon again. And it is just such in my second nature that I'll use words that I realize that maybe my patients just aren't getting. Building right off of that, patients should say, if they don't understand, I don't understand what you just said. Don't politely nod. Just say, I don't understand. And I think another important thing that patients can do is ask a provider, ask your physician, ask your nurse, what more can I be doing as a patient? How can I be helpful to you? How can I contribute more to this healthcare team and this therapeutic alliance that we're developing? Yeah, because I think we know it is beyond question. Healthy doctor-patient relationships improve health outcomes. And again, a good relationship fosters good communication, which improves diagnosis, improves assessing response to treatment. And so, you know, it encourages people to tell their doctors about symptoms that they might not otherwise disclose and get help with. So, you know, lastly, I think there's almost this feeling of of comfort with your physician. So find a doctor that you as a patient feel you can communicate with. 
Uh, it's worth, in my opinion, I, I think you agree, changing doctors for this very purpose. I often say if, if a doc declines to offer a second opinion for you, that's a reason to go and get a second opinion. And then I'm going to end with a, a phrase that um, I've used several times online, but I really mean it. The self-advocating patient is the most powerful force in healthcare. For all the complexity that we're trying to decipher here, for all of the billions of dollars in systems involved, the patient who is advocating for themselves is the one that is going to drive the most change. Absolutely. Absolutely. Totally agree. So before we go, JL, I didn't pick a mean tweet. I picked what I thought was a uh, relevant tweet. So um, I actually just been on Twitter this week and I said to our fellow doctors, here's a pro tip. Whatever the patient tells you when you have your hand on the doorknob to leave the room is the reason you should stay. And, you know, because often that, that person is realizing, oh, my gosh, I'm out of time. I got to tell the doc this. And if you don't let your ears kind of prick up, you don't take a moment to absorb that, you're often missing something really, really crucial. And um, one reply, a response I saw that you liked in Amplified 2 Jail was from at Vicki Valrush, who's an oncology nurse, as it happens. And she said, I always start our journey together, meaning with the patient, telling people that when I ask how you are, I don't just want a fine. I want to know how your bowels are doing. Are you SOB? <laughs> you know, that reminded me of our conversation about really need sure. to be careful with that acronym, you know? So are you short of breath? Are your fingers and toes numb? Do you have a rash, a fever, pain? It is so important to speak up. And then that really allows you to influence and control to the extent that is appropriate your own care. And when my patients do that, it makes me a better oncologist. That makes me a better doc. So that's a lot, but that's our show for today. Another great way to practice health advocacy is to ask us a question. And if we like it, we might create a whole episode around it. Reach out to us via email at isitserious at offscript.com. That's offscript without a T. Or call us at Offscript Health and leave a message. Our number is 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. You can also find me, as mentioned, on Twitter at MarkLewisMD. And I'm also on Twitter. I'm at Jean-Luc Neptune, and I'm also on LinkedIn. So just know that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, this show doesn't provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure to ask your doctor. So take care, everybody, and please join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. 
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.